We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovix. Joining me today is Matthew Pippenberg, Commercial Director of Matterhorn Asset Management and also the author of Gold Matters and Rig to Fail. How are you today, Matt? I'm great, Tom. It's good to be back to share ideas again. Looking forward to Absolutely. It. I know the 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 last interview we had, we we discussed some really interesting ideas, and I always look forward to our discussions because you know we're we're able to have kind of a broader discussion about let's say maybe maybe some of the symptoms of this you know this this dying system this this debt soaked as you as you call it system so maybe i'd like to start with one of your the most recent articles that you wrote and ask you if klaus schwab and the idea of the great reset is more of a symptom of exactly what we're talking about here this broken and debt soaked developed economy that we have seen before in history yeah it's um you know as i talked about in the article you know Klaus Schwab is kind of a metaphor for so many um, trends that are so interconnected today. There's so much interconnection and themes, whether it's you know debt themes or market themes, which we tend to focus on. But it's also uh, you know psychological themes, uh, political themes, which are partisan and not necessarily an expert for me to offer suggestions on. But there's a weaponization of the media. There's a weaponization of pharmaceutical ideas of science as a weaponization of politics as a weaponization of regulatory bodies against open debate easy discussion uh maybe even a chance to to challenge ideas and instead there's a there's crises whether they're man-made bat-made politically made or naturally made that are wonderful opportunities as you know many politicians have said and churchill i think was one of them never let a good crisis go to waste and i think you know, there's a lot of um, controversy about Klaus Schwab, his psychological profile, his his expertise in markets and history. But he's certainly, like so many figures, good and bad throughout history, an opportunist. Whether you're looking at 20th century early Russia, or you're looking at 18th century France, or you're looking at Yugoslavia or Europe in the 1930s or South America and various eras, every great or bad figure comes into being usually when there's a crisis. And they usually capture a trend rather than offer a solution. And usually the solutions are messy. And again, um, you know, whether Klaus Schwab, I joke, I don't think he's a non-human, you know, out to, to rule the world and terrorize the world. But I think he's dangerous. I think he might think he means well, but I think he's an opportunist. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I talked about, I did a presentation in Frankfurt, one in English and one in German. It was the same rough theme going through the history of cycles, debt cycles, and political cycles, and really going back from the Ming dynasty, the Roman Empire, to modern times, to the 18th century, 17th century, 20th century, you see these cycles that are fairly obvious. And whenever there's a major debt crisis, what follows is always a financial crisis, then a political crisis, then social unrest. And from that social unrest comes an extreme political reaction extreme left or extreme right and usually they're messy and usually they don't solve anything and hopefully you know that pattern becomes more clear i look at klaus schwab as an example of that process you know he didn't maybe himself create the debt crisis which really began decades ago with this fantasy that when you're in debt you can solve a debt crisis with more debt paid for with money literally mouse clicked into existence with no 
correlation to a, a good or service. So that's a highly inflationary, addictive, and destructive policy, which became mainstream. That would have been fringe 30 years ago, even 20 years ago to business school. Now it is our monetary policy. Where the Fed goes or where the central banks go, where rates go, the markets go. It's that simple. And that's created an addiction that anyone would be addicted to, a debt crisis. But in, in, in Klaus Schwab's case, um, like the IMF or the Bank of International Settlements or in our Jerome Powell, the COVID crisis uh, was a great opportunity. He called it the greatest turning point in our lifetimes or in recent history. It's not. It isn't. The IMF compared COVID and the pandemic to World War II and the need for a new Bretton Woods and a new debt restructuring, a new monetary system. That was in 2020, early in the COVID crisis. Um, but again, I'm not here to provide uh, fodder for a debate on the COVID reaction or the policy reaction or the science of COVID. I think it's fairly clear now, whatever whatever your views on that or other people's views, and you can look at, um, you know, I think some pretty brilliant, brave, rare journalists or thought leaders from, from Matt Ridley to, you know, Russell Brand to Jordan Peterson to, uh, you know, Brett Weinstein, not to mention the great Barrington scientists and academics from Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford, fairly credible, that this crisis was A, mishandled, it was exaggerated, um, but nevertheless, it was an opportunity. And for Klaus Schwab to say in 2020, and then again this year, that this is an opportunity because it's such a great crisis. It's not a great crisis for the world. It's a great opportunity for Klaus Schwab. And what Klaus Schwab has is this incredible faith in institutional or centralized control. He said it. Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping from China was one of his guest speakers, is one of his heroes. And what Schwab, like most opportunists, and you could even say demagogues if you want to be extreme, they have a wonderful knack for giving nice labels to really bad things, like the Orwellian Institution of Truth or the Committee of Public Safety under Robespierre. What, what Schwab's Great Reset is fundamentally premised upon is this notion of stakeholder capitalism as opposed to shareholder capitalism. Because more corporations, which we can all admit for the last 20 years have not done very well with their ethics or their balance sheets or their financial statements, that more corporation, corporate boards should include social justice thinkers, environmental thinkers, um, you know, uh, equality thinkers, which again, I'm, that sounds wonderful on paper, but really what it is, it's the idea or the faith that the institutional boards can save the world from all the crises, including the pandemic and the debt crisis, and that we can rely on centralization. Again, I have argued, and I think history would confirm that centralization has never worked. Extreme centralization in any zip code at any time in history has always ended in disaster. And so uh, nevertheless, it's an opportunity for Schwab, whether he believes that he's really an altruist or whether he's just a psychopathic opportunist is to be debated. Mm -hmm. uh, I personally think he's somewhere in the middle, but I do think he's a symptom of this extreme control that always crops up when things are falling apart. And things are falling apart objectively, globally, and not in the emerging markets, but in developing economies globally, not just in emerging markets. And it's it's a simple word. It's a complex problem. Mm -hmm. It's a simple word. It's debt. You know, 300 plus trillion in global debt. It's quadrupled in the last 30 years. Uh, U.S. public debt is over 31 trillion. Combined household, corporate, and private debt is over 90 trillion. Those numbers are like the Holocaust. They're an abstraction. They're an abstraction. They're hard to conceptualize. Millions of lives, trillions of dollars. At a certain point, it becomes overwhelming to the consciousness and even to the balance sheets of these countries. But also, as history and math would confirm, debt always destroys nations. 
you know, David Hume understood this in 1752. Adam Smith understood this. Reinhard and Rogoff understood this. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Powell doesn't understand it. Christine Lagarde doesn't understand it, or at least won't admit to it. Schwab might understand it, but he's trying to take advantage of it. So again, this is the most probably the most intangible and dangerous result. Not just talking about credit markets and stock markets or tech stocks and Bitcoin versus precious metals. We're talking about a real dangerous trend um, of, of, of centralized thinking. Um, and again, central bank digital currency is just one more example of that. Um, it's an, another symptom of that, which we can talk about. But again, Klaus Schwab physically, intellectually, and politically is kind of like a James Bond character. He's the ultimate bad guy trying to look like a good guy, whether he means well or not for himself. It's hard to tell. Most of these leaders from Lenin to uh, to Biden, I would say, and, and left or right in a nonpartisan way, and that would include Macron and Trudeau in your country, are somewhat psychopathic. There's a there's a, almost a and that's where you dip into psychology, these things interlap. There's almost um, an inversion of what you think is the ideal politician, which is to serve a greater good. And I see we have a crop of leaders around the world who are centralized in the sense that they come from the same funding sources, they come from the same lobby groups, they come from the same power vacuums, and they're really about themselves. And you know that's a cynical opinion, but I think the evidence is fairly clear. Um, you know what's happening with this, with again the weaponization of pharmaceutical companies and lobbying groups, the 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 impact that lobbying groups have on our congressmen and women and our Senate, the the power of money, the power of central banks, which is an, as an inherently centralized uh, mechanization. They're called central banks for a reason and a euphemism. The Federal Reserve, as I've always said, is neither federal nor reserve. And it was warned against from you know Andrew Jackson, Thomas Jefferson, and even you know Woodrow Wilson. This is a very dangerous institution. It is what drives the markets, but it is centralizing our economy and our markets. And and I think it's created the biggest debt nightmare in history. The idea that you can again solve debt with more debt and monetize that debt with mouse click money, I think even to a ten year old is a fantasy. But that fantasy has become addictive, and it's led to an expansion of not only the Fed balance sheet but U.S. deficits. Um, you know, we just passed a bill in the U.S. for 1.7 trillion. You know, again, where does that money come from if not from a, a money printer? Because it's not coming from tax receipts, it's not coming from productivity, it's not coming from any kind of growth. It's, it's insanity, it's madness, and that madness is reflected in the bond markets. It is reflected in the, even in the stock markets, but first in the bond markets. And that's why the bond market, I've always said, is the thing. It has to be supported by a mouse click money printer. Otherwise, there's no one to buy those bonds. Sovereign bond total returns last year were the worst in since 1700. Since 1700, and across the credit markets, uh, total nominal return in the U.S. for stocks and bonds was the worst since 1871 after the U.S. Civil War. So again, they're all interconnected: markets, psychology, centralized, weaponized institutions, uh, the faded institutions. Even the institution that is journalism today, let's not kid ourselves. Again, left or right, these are squawk posts. They're not interviews. They're not unbiased discussions. They're propaganda tools that we would laugh about in Eastern Europe in the 1950s or 60s, or certainly under Goebbels in the 1930s. But whatever your news media choice is, there is a blatantly political bent to it, a messaging side to it. And most of these media companies are very uh, consolidated and they're owned by corporate boards with a political bend. That doesn't allow us the America that Thomas Jefferson or Thomas Paine envisioned or the fourth estate, which was supposed to question power, not be the voice of power. And 
again, we could go on and on in history and psychology, philosophy, or politics, or our founding fathers' principles, the human element, which overclums all of this. I think even, you know, I have a great respect for Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, you know, old white men, or whatever you want to say, but their ideals were great. But even these men were flawed because human nature is flawed. And that's where it gets kind of esoteric. That's mm -hmm. the philosophy, the Nietzschean side of this, where the Hobbes law question, is man inherently good or bad? towards peace or towards war, what we're seeing now in this crisis, in this debt crisis, are more, I think, bad characters. And uh, again, I think they're across the board and across politics, certainly uh, in Western Europe, South America, Eastern Europe, uh, Zelensky to Putin, they both have incredible flaws. Um, but again, I think it's pretty ubiquitous. And that scares me, this, 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 uh, this kind of growth of opportunism right now in the backdrop of a crisis, which was man-made. Uh, central bank made ultimately, and mm -hmm. central bankers uh, from Greenspan to Bernanke, Yellen, and Powell. I think Greenspan I wrote in the past was the patient zero, the individual who once was against easy money and against big government and against this type of spending, and then became the godfather of it. And that's a psychological problem that happened to Greenspan, and that gets into the weeds of his profile. But these cults of personality, this 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 new faith in, in centralized control, this new faith in in enterprise um, involvement instead of individual liberties uh, that we're seeing curtailed, whether you're trying to cross a border or decide what to do in the name of a social contract over your own body, these are all coming to the forefront now. And I think a lot of folks don't know who to trust anymore. I think most people are good. They 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 wouldn't pull this kind of wool over someone's eyes. They assume their politicians wouldn't either. But there's a fracturing of that faith. Uh, right now. Mm -hmm. Well, Matt, there's a, a heck of a lot to get to there, but you know, Klaus Schwab, you asked about Klaus Schwab. It all comes <laughs> back to Klaus Schwab. <laughs> well, you know, in that, in that type of collectivism, that's, you know, being idealized in, let's say the, the great reset and, and the, the direction that Klaus Schwab would like the world to head in some ways, does that go against the human nature that we we're talking about? You know, that that could be one of the reasons why a centralized system doesn't work because of the lack of personal freedom and the inability of the voting mechanism of the market to make a choice in itself. That's interesting. I mean, I think it's always been an enlightened minority. It has nothing to do with your income, your education level. It's instinctive. It's intuitive. That's why people grab pitchforks and muskets and or collect in the streets. They feel an intuitive sense that their freedom is being curtailed. And they'll fight for that freedom, or they'll argue for that freedom, or they'll speak or write for that freedom. It can be a pen or a pitchfork, but the problem is many, many people are too tired, too debt-strapped themselves, too afraid. And that's not a criticism. Um, you have to understand, you talk about um, survival at, at a kind of existential level, and this goes back, again, all interconnected. You, you look at the central banks and what they've done in the last 15 years, really since the great financial crisis, when Bernanke and Paulson and, and Geithner had this brilliant idea to print money out of thin air to save banks and to save Wall Street. What that did was create the greatest asset bubble I've ever studied or traded in my life. And that goes back to your question. I want to get to it. But what happened when, when quantitative easing became what was a temporary solution to be phased out by 2010 became QE1, 2, 3, 4, Operation Twist? You know, QE to infinity after the COVID crisis. Well, what that did was create a massive inflation in the asset bubbles in the S and P and the credit markets and the in the equity markets. And that's okay. People say, but no, it's, it's something deeper than that. Because what's not being discussed in the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times 
and this just came out, I sent you a graph on it, the 89% of stock market wealth that we spent trillions in balance sheet expansion just at the Fed level, not to mention the trillions we've done in the repo markets to support this bubble. 89% of that wealth is held by the top 10% of the US wealth. The bottom 50% of America, as an example, has 1% of that wealth. Mm -hmm. So when you have a population that's broke, debt strapped, paying 18% on their visa, well, the shadow banking system and banks pay 0% or corporations on the S&P get free money for over a decade, you create this financial weapon becomes a social has social consequences. Powell is too blind to admit this, but it has social consequences. When the most when the majority of the middle class and lower middle class have to get through each week and each month, they don't have time necessarily to think about things or to write letters or articles or get on interviews or to educate themselves on the history of central banking or what really is monetary policy, what does interest rates mean? I, I don't blame them. They're simply trying to get by. Mm -hmm. I think opportunists like Schwab and politicians like Biden or Trudeau or the left or the right can take advantage of that because what they really want is a dependent population, a debt strap population. And the idea is we are your benevolent savers. We, your leaders, care about you. And as Christine Anderson said at the, at the European Parliament in the height of the COVID crisis, don't believe that for a second. Never in the history of politics when they said this is for your own good, was it for your own good? There's been a massive wealth transfer in the last 15 years. And that has created, I think, a minority of people who have either the financial freedom, they call it escape velocity, like Jordan Peterson has enough money now that he can fight things that are happening to him in Canada. Or you know, guys like Joel Rogan, you get these platforms and voices because they can afford to take risks. I can afford to take risks. Not everyone can. They're just trying to pay a mortgage. And so when they get a check or they get enough money for a jet ski or they can make it to the Super Bowl or at least watch it on TV, they're going to just keep their heads down. Or if they try to speak about something, whether it's identity politics, racial politics, or polit political politics, there's such a risk of being uh, branded as something you're not immediately galvanizing. I don't blame people for keeping their heads down, but there's always a, a part of the population, left or right, peacefully, hopefully, that says enough is enough. Let's at least start asking questions. Uh, let's start you know, let's start asking questions about the CDC or let's start que asking questions about Fauci or about Powell or about central banks or about Zelensky or Putin. The narrative on that war is completely one-sided. Again, I'm not here to defend or attack one or the other, but I, mm -hmm. I think it's a discussion worth having because, you know, thousands of people are dying. But again, whether it's politics or markets, whether it's the destruction of the middle class through central banking and through the bailouts, whether it was the I think one of the greatest ethical, financial, and moral catastrophes, which was the reaction to COVID, the, the pandemic policy was more dangerous than the pandemic itself. Mathematically, doesn't make me a grandma killer, doesn't make me indifferent to suffering, doesn't make me a flat earther or a tinfoil hat. But what we don't have anymore in this journalism today, which is a journalistic industrial complex rather than, this is not the days of Woodward and Bernstein. The New York Times and the Washington Post are not free thinking. They're subject to a messaging board from its ownership on down. So again, um, to your question, what can people do or how can people react and how can people be vulnerable? Is there, there are reactions from China to Venezuela, to New York, to Paris. There are manifestations. But people, I think, feel like they're rowing against an impossible current. And uh, you even see, you know, even people with a lot of courage are exhausted. And they're exhausted of being penalized by tweet tweeters or twits. 
and uh, tweet, you know, I don't even know, Twitter accounts and 50 word, you know, 50 word count slogans. And I think people are afraid to stick their neck out. And that's kind of the self-censorship that comes from centralization. Again, these are political themes, but they're all tied to financial themes. When I was a student studying philosophy, I thought the question was always man-made. It's always about man, but history moves by psychology, but also moves on financial cycles. And there's always hell to pay when countries are against the wall when they're debt soaked and against the wall, because that's when these opportunists and new solutions, more importantly, controls come in. And we're seeing that across the board, the the pandemic we just went through and what we saw there, whether you're for or against the reactions, whether you're Australian, Canadian, or American or European, many of us free thinkers, not crazies, are starting to question just what the hell did we just go through? What was this all about? Uh, And I think that same curiosity, that same kind of cynicism was easy for me to see in the markets. That's why I wrote Rig to Fail before the COVID crisis. And I saw it just in central bank policy or just in Wall Street insider trades or just in the arbitrage opportunities on a bond desk and what you can do with Fed policy, how that, you know, I, I've made a lot of money shorting tech stocks because I know what to look for. It's simple because fangs go up and down with money printers. When QE goes to QT, you can short the tech sector. The ARK ETF fund lost 70% from its highs last year. That wasn't super smart. It's just my inside knowledge, I suppose, experience on Wall Street said, well, when the money printing tightens, tech stocks are going to tank. So it's all controlled. It's not just politics. It's not just markets. It's rigged to a sense. It's centralized. I think it's important to note, too, that when they talk about just the quantitative tightening of last year, this was the big discussion. When will the central banks pivot? When will they throw in the towel, in particular Fed? I mean, in some ways, the Bank of Japan and the Bank of England some point in 2022 kind of gave up on too much tightening and now they're trying to do it again. But the big question now, because the markets go where the Fed goes, it's no longer Adam Smith's free enter, you know, free market. There's no free price discovery in a Fed-based centralized Fed market. But keep in mind in 30,000 feet, step back. The Fed balance sheet in 2022 went down by 2.4%. That's not even a dent. All this talk of tightening, taking the wind behind, taking away the wind underneath the, the wings of this rotten market, 2.4% reduction in the Fed balance sheet. And what did the stock and bond markets do? Again, worst total return since 1871 on a simple 2.4% reduction in money supply or money printing. So now if the Fed keeps up its pace of $95 billion a month in tightening, you're looking at an annualized rate of 13%. Mm-hmm. So- if a 2.4% balance sheet reduction did that much pain to the markets last year, what will 13% do this year to the bond and stock markets? And that goes to the question of will Powell pivot? Does he have a choice? Is he trying to engineer a market crash? Does he care? Is that how he's going to fight inflation? They're all related. But the question before we get into the pivot or no pivot, how markets react is, why is it that a central bank determines this financial future for all of us? It's been great for the top 10%. But why is the fates of history and the fates of markets and the fates of the world dependent on a central bank? And that is exactly what Thomas Jefferson warned about. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing it hundreds of years later. And again, it's not, it's not cynicism. It's, it's, the, it's the philosophy and the math of debt and the danger of centralization to control that debt. And Matt, you know, is that is that why you say that we don't have free markets now, you know, you said that in, in one of your recent articles and is, is, is that basically exactly why you said that? Well, yeah, I mean this, I mean, I'm from the same town in Stevensville, Michigan from where David Stockman, who was the the budget director for Ronald Reagan 
Uh, David Stockman, I think, is an unsung hero. I mean, I, I've always followed him. Um, and, uh, you know, he wrote a book called The Great Deformation years ago, before any of this happened. He was so far ahead of his time from the inside and so blunt that when you look at, again, if you just look at a graph since the great financial crisis, where the money printers went, the stock market went. Because when you repress rates and print trillions of dollars, of course, money is going to be free. And any zombie to genius on the S&P who's listed is going to go up in price, mm -hmm. whether it's based on demand or whether it's based on stock buybacks for free, where you can just roll over debt to buy your own shares. The markets are going to rip. And that's exactly what they did. But that's not what Adam Smith or free market capitalism was designed to do. It's supposed to be based on natural demand and natural supply. And when they get out of whack, they correct themselves, often painfully, but they correct themselves along the way, just like our immune system corrects itself, but we have to get sick. What, what Geithner and Bernanke and Paulson decided to save Goldman Sachs and Citi and not Bear Stearns and uh, Lehman because they didn't like Jimmy Kane and Dick Fool, but what they tried to do was eradicate the sniffles forever. And all that does is destroy the immune system. So we've had this run for over a decade that it was fantastic for the top 10% of American wealth, destroyed the, you know, the, the middle class. But more importantly, that addiction to easy money, that addiction to repressed rates is, is, is again, I've joked in other interviews, that's like 10, 15, 20 martinis. That eventually has a, an uh-oh moment, a hangover moment. And we're trying to postpone that, uh, but we can't anymore because at some point, I don't care if it's your 20th martini or your 21st martini, the hangover is going to be hell. Mm -hmm. and, and Powell right now knows that. He's trying to tighten the balance sheet, but he's guilty of drinking all the, uh, providing all the free liquor. And that's the great irony. And so he's going to blame the recession that is here or to come. I think it's here. We can talk about that. He'll blame that on a virus and the deficit spending that was necessary for this global crisis. He'll blame it on Putin and a war, which we can discuss, which was entirely avoidable. Mm -hmm. And he'll blame it on supply shocks and extraneous events that he'll never look in the mirror, look to the public and say, boy, I think that $8 trillion expansion in the balance sheet might have had an inflationary effect. It might have had a social effect. It might have had a wealth transfer effect. It might have had a political effect. We got that really, really wrong. At least we're sorry. You'll never hear that. Mm -hmm. Instead, you'll give someone like Bernanke, a Nobel Prize. You know, my my four year old dog could come up with a better solution than printing money to solve a debt crisis. I don't think uh, he deserves a Nobel Prize. I think, and I joked with Grant Williams, I think Bernanke deserves a Nobel Prize for fiction. And the fact that the institution, the centralized institution of the Nobel Committee, would prop up someone like Ben Bernanke as a hero, as central banks around the world have distorted natural supply and demand, makes me that much more cynical. I mean, that's the irony of all ironies, giving Bernanke, the godfather of money printing. He gave the, the playbook to the Bank of Japan in the late 80s to print money to solve a problem. Look at Japan. It's a zombie. Mm -hmm. So it, 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 it's, it's, it's fascinating that he would get a Nobel Prize in economics for something so distorted as solving money with a money printer. Again, I've joked again, if you or I could, could, could counterfeit money in our basement, who wouldn't do it? If we could get away with it, if it was legal... We'd have a car, we'd have a garage full of Ferraris, or all our kids would be going to Choden Exeter, and we'd have three or four houses in Gestad because we're just printing money. We'd look very successful. Mm -hmm. I joke too that if I if I if I write a book and my rich uncle buys every copy, well then I'm a bestseller. But I'm not a real bestseller, I'm not a real success, I'm a counterfeit success. Mm -hmm. And the money that's been transferred in the last 15 years and the economies that have borrowed time and the politicians that have bought votes on easy money. 
deficit spending and trillion dollar expansions per year in their balance sheet are counterfeit politicians. And I mean, the biggest joke of all is, is George Santos. He's easy. He's like St. Beckman Freed. He's such a catastrophe. Literally everything he says from where he went to high school, what religion he is, what his name is, where he worked, everything was a lie. That's too easy. Not every politician is that pathological, but the fact that he's even still in Congress is an embarrassment to the institution that is the Congress. And the fact that Sam Bankman-Fried just a year ago said he's going to buy Goldman Sachs by doing what? Misusing client funds and levering that to make his own market in cryptos. Again, that's not a, a, the fault of Bitcoin. That's the fault of human nature. And again, these counterfeit heroes are starting to be called out. It's easy to make fun of Sam Bankman-Fried. It's easy to make fun of George Santos or even Klaus Schwab. But I think you've got to turn the mirror on some of the some of the elected officials bought and paid for by lobbyists who've expanded our balance sheets in Canada, in the US, in England, in Europe, um, and call them to task. Um, and as Brett Weinstein has said, the same thing is true of some of these health policies, the politicization of science, the science. As far as I recall from school, it's just like law. The science is to have open debate with evidence and facts before you make a conclusion. In law school, you make a conclusion after you look at the facts. You don't make the conclusion first and then invent the facts. I used to, I could win any jury trial if I could omit certain facts. You can make a witch look pretty if you omit the warts. <laughs> and I think, I think what we need now and what we don't have is at least more open debate and discussion and more accountability for, mm-hmm. for an absolutely fairy fairy tale monetary policy since the great financial crisis of 2008 and frankly beforehand but uh uh i hope i answered your question in some way absolutely matt and it's it's kind of funny i've i've actually come you know personally to dub this as the the age of unaccountability um and you know exactly as you're saying the the idea that we need some type of objective truth to determine what is right and what is wrong and what direction we should head you know, it, we can take that to let's say the the looking at the lens of a central bank is is the redefinition of recession, for example, or the ability of these central banks to calculate their own inflation. Does that does that you know show us? Is that another symptom that they are probably in more trouble than they want to admit publicly? Uh, it's, it's absolutely true, Tom. I mean, and I've written about this so many times. I mean, again, they're boring topics, the CPI inflation scale, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, the definition of a recession. Again, for many of the average people who are good people who don't have time to get into the weeds of these things, it's understandable they don't understand that. Even what does it really mean, the CPI or the core CPI? I try to make it very simple You know, in the sense I've written how the CPI scale is completely fraudulent. This isn't, again, a conspiracy theory. This isn't uh, sensationalism, the scale used to measure inflation is so twisted. It's fiction from the, from the DC offices. It's fiction. And everyone on Wall Street knows it. it's still important. It may be 100% wrong, but it's always right. We still use it to measure market direction. But again, it's like that lawyer, if you can omit certain facts, you can win every case. If you mm-hmm. can omit the reality of CPI inflation, which I think is at least 50% underreported, you know, that should be a discussion, an open discussion on the floors of Congress to CNN to Fox News. We should be discussing what is, how is inflation ma- measured? I say it's like a fat camp where you go and you get fatter while you're there because they're feeding you <laughs> chocolate and pizza. But the scale says you're getting thinner because at this fat camp, we don't measure calories from chocolate, beer, or pizza. So even though you're measurably fatter, the scale says you're getting thinner. 
And again, inflation, whether it's at 6.5 where it is now or 9.1 at its high in June, it's still too high. It's really closer to 17%. The 6.5% CPI today is probably based on the, the fact that housing markets have rolled over in a high interest rate environment, but there's more to it than that. But the truth is the inflation scale is as bogus as it can be. And that's wonderfully convenient to the central bankers who control the narrative, control the evidence that the trial can quote, therefore control the verdict. Because the Fed needs inflation to get themselves out of debt. They don't want to report inflation. And that's very complex, but very simple. Um, but it's wonderful to misreport inflation while you take advantage of it at the same time. Meanwhile, if, if, if Powell wants to fight inflation, you know, like Volcker with rising rates, I remind Powell and all our listeners that when Volcker was raising rates to 17, 18%, the US debt was less than a trillion. We're at 31 trillion today. And so it's not the same world as Powell. I mean, as Volcker. And Powell is not Volcker. Mm -hmm. and, and, and what are Powell's real motives? Again, a recession can be uh, disinflationary. He's never going to get to targeted 2% inflation with rising rates. For so many reasons, a Fed pivot is going to be incredibly dangerous. We can talk about that. But again, to your point, if you can control the narrative, control what is inflation, um, uh, then you can control uh, your policies without, you know, commit sins without paying the piper, at least publicly. The, the economy will still crash. The markets will still crash. But you're fighting inflation. Uh, it's it's incredibly complex and also incredibly disingenuous. I think one of the important points that he's also able to control the narrative, right? Mm -hmm. Controlling the narrative of you know, being able to have, hopefully have some type of effect on inflation, right? And so let's let's get into exactly how you see that going forward. You just said that the, the next yeah. Fed pivot is probably going to be very dangerous. You know, I've had a couple of discussions recently about the idea that we're maybe in, in just the first wave you know, and, and if we go back to the 70s, as you said, there were kind of three waves of inflation and we're kind of, we could be in the, in the, that first step where we see inflation start to come down before it really ramps up again, dramatically. Yeah. Again, this goes, and these are very important topics. Um, the pivot, the non-pivot, Fed policy, Powell's psychology, uh, the history of markets and cycles. Again, going back well over a century, and again, any country, any economy, freedom, non-freedom, uh, it's math. This is the toxic math that David Hume and Adam Smith and we've talked about. When you get to a point where your debt to GDP is well over 120%, when, you're, when your back's against a debt-soaked wall, like the U.S. clearly is, I mean, U.S. deficits are greater than 30% of global GDP growth. So that is un, it's un, unfathomable. But it's also mathematically clear that the only result when you get to that type of debt level, mathematically, again, this isn't me picking on Lagarde or Powell or Kuroda or the Bank of England. They know better. There's only two There's only two results throughout history. Either they default, which is political suicide, or there's inflation. And we have inflation because we've, we've created more money out of thin air than is imaginable, but we've also got supply chain shocks. So first of all... Uh, Powell will never fight inflation with rising rates. I'm, I'll say that right now. He can bring it from 9.1 to 6.5. That's because we're going. In, we are in a recession, in my opinion. Again, that gets in the definition of recession. We're talking about the CPI definition of inflation. Mm -hmm. Well, Powell could then change the definition of recession. Last time I checked, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth and an inverted yield curve is pretty recessionary to me. 
But like his transitory inflation myth, or like his definition of the CPI inflation, or now the definition of a recession, they can just change the goalposts midfield to keep moving the ball down the field in their own kind of toxic direction. But we are in a recession. Now, you could argue that a recession, man-made by the Fed, because they, they raise rates to a point where debt becomes unpayable, well, that that recession will be disinflationary and Powell will win his war against inflation by destroying the economy. In what was once a soft landing, many pivoted to softish landing. It's my opinion, and it would be wonderful to discuss and debate this with others. It's going to be anything but a softish landing. And for Powell or any central banker to arrogantly think that they could control a recession like a thermostat at home with a little tweak of you know maximum velocity rates at five percent or five and two quarter twenty five basis points five point two five, and think that we can we can just control the recession like it's a thermostat is incredibly arrogant. Mm-hmm. That is like hubris comes before the fall or hawkmute comes before the fall, as we say in Switzerland. It's incredibly arrogant, incredibly typical of these delusional leaders who will never take accountability for the the, the corner they put themselves in. So to your question, uh, I think we're going to see stagflation. We're going to see continued slow growth because we've, 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 we've shot all our bullets now. It's Even if we go back to QE, QE, a pivot back to QE, and we recycle the markets back up, well, that will be an inflation in asset classes, but we'll also have an inflation period and a devaluation of the dollar. So if you make 10% more on your stock, but inflation's at 8% or 12% reported, you're still losing money. You're running uphill in roller skates. Powell has put himself and our country and the world and central bankers around the world have put ourselves in an impossible solution where we either tighten and destroy the economy and destroy the markets, which you've seen in the credit and equity markets last year, and we'll see again this year, depending on what happens. It's, to me, it's inevitable. Or they pivot you know, to save the markets and create hyperinflation or more inflationary pain. Um, there are arguments to be made that, you know, because that 10% that benefited the most from the last 15 years or 12 years of QE, they've got $4 trillion sitting on the sidelines right now. They've made a lot of money. It's sitting on cash. It'll be a different kind of recession because there's so much wealth in a small minority of the population. <laughs> For them, and I see it, and I see it in Switzerland, you got Middle Easterners and you've got some Americans, some uh, Chinese with a great deal of money. Uh, despite the fact that the economies are tanking all around. So the recession will hit the middle class and lower middle class the hardest. The upper class can, because inflation is painful to the rich, it's devastating to the middle class. And I don't think they care. And so the leaders will make that middle class more dependent on a handout and less, hopefully for them, less prone to grab a pitchfork. But I think a pivot, I think a pivot to more QE in the backdrop of the debt situation we're in um, is going to is going to have less and less effect. Just like you know, when you've gotten so many martinis, that Bloody Mary has less and less effect. Eventually, you're just going to be everyone gets sick. I think the fact that you know you've got shadow banking systems like hedge funds, you've got companies on the S and P, the Dow, and the Nasdaq that are reliant upon cheap debt. If Powell keeps pushing rates up, there's a point where it's a cliff moment where it pushes things over. Um, and so that would be very dangerous if if he pivots to QE, which I think is inevitable, not because he's smart or because he wants to try and save Wall Street, which of course he does, but it won't work. The problem is now if you pivot to QE, um, the inflationary effect will be incredible. And I think the faith in central banks will 
fracture even more because more people will be aware that there's a handout again to Wall Street and the banking system in the name of the social justice and the social contract. It's really for a minority. I think there'll be less and less impact on that QE, just like the drug loses its effect. Too much of the same weed doesn't give you the same high. Too much of the same alcohol doesn't give you the same buzz. You need more and more. I think it'll hit a point where it doesn't work. But what will happen is there'll be a fracturing of faith that can be very dangerous. It'll be interesting. But when I said in throughout history, it's either when you get to this much debt, it's either inflation or default. But what's new about Klaus Schwab and this new central bank digital currency and this new kind of world order is, well, the other option is a reset, right? In the past, it was either default, like Argentina, or um, inflation, like Weimar Germany or Venezuela. But now it's this idea of a reset, which is another carefully termed like quantitative easing or the Patriot Act. These are nice terms, but when you look beneath it, what is a reset? It's just a big chapter 11 for debt-soaked, filthy rich 10 percenters to restructure debt. But that's never orderly and it's not simple. And it mm-hmm. won't be it won't be global because you have a very multipolar world now financially, multi-currency world with the BRICS and China and Russia and even Saudi Arabia now. If they want to do a reset with Western money and the US dollar and US based debt, that's not going to be orderly. 14 trillion in US dollar denominated debt is owed throughout the world, not just to the US banks, but global banks. Third world countries, emerging market economies, developing economies have had decades of not being able to pay high interest rate debt to the US. And so as the dollar gets stronger, that debt obligation becomes more painful. Countries are simply turning their backs uh, on, on, on the US dollar. So any kind of restructuring will not be orderly. But that's the other thing. If, if, if the Fed doesn't pivot, they'll throw in the towel and, and blame something on Putin or COVID or geopolitical risk, and they'll do a big... Davos like get together G7 let's restructure debt which will be a disaster but that will be one other way of not taking accountability let's not blame this on our money printers our debt policies our deficit spending let's blame it on geopolitics and that'll be interesting to see and again i have no idea how or when that's going to play out it's either default which is political suicide more inflation which i see or this great reset um which is highly dependent on central bank digital currency which is again a control state mechanism masquerading as an effective payment system, which I wrote about at length, which you can get into. But again, the, what they tell you is very warm and fuzzy. It's better than a clearinghouse. It's better than telegraph lines, quick payment system, great cross-border transfers. Perfect, by the way, for a great reset when we start gouging you and, and we converting your dollars into e-dollars and take a little bit off the top for our debt. Mm-hmm. But really what it is, it's a control state. And that goes back to our original theme. And again, it's not conspiracy theory anymore. It's control. It's control. As you saw in Canada with Bitcoin, if Trudeau can turn that off for a bunch of truckers or turn off their checking accounts, imagine how much easier that's going to be with central bank digital currencies. And I used, I joked, if Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and Ben Franklin tried to get together in Philadelphia and write the Declaration of Independence under a central bank digital currency, they couldn't have even gotten on a train or a coach because they would have already been controlled. Their accounts would have been shut down. They would have been considered threats to national security. And again, these are the things that are not debated enough. When Powell came out and talked about the importance and the efficiency of central bank digital currency or an e-dollar, he said, we won't replace cash and we won't disrespect your privacy rights. And he may be sincere. That should be debated though, mm-hmm. because if the mad King George had it, he would have used it. And maybe Powell's not the mad King George, maybe Biden isn't, debatable, but somebody someday will use it to control as we've seen with social credit scores in China, and as we're going to see in other countries, when this powerful instrument of a, a digitalized, encrypted 
um, you know, platform is used for you to spend your money and, you know, they can tax you, they can confiscate you, they can control you and they can punish you with the click of a button. Mm -hmm. That's a scary conversation. It's worth having. I don't have all the answers. I'm not pointing the finger at anyone in particular, but these are the kind of conversations that are not being had in an, in an intelligent, sober way, left and right in front of the, uh, the American Canadian or European people. And in an honest way, the risks are not being discussed only the rewards. So this is a lie of omission here. Well, you know, that's a, a great point, Matt, that Sam Harris has made in the past. And he says it as if, if your politician, the, the guy that you like, you want to hand him a bunch of power, you have to think about the consequences of that submission of that power down the road. If your opponent or if your politician's political opponent ends up with that same power, would you be okay with them having that? And I think that short-sighted thinking is a major symptom and a detriment of exactly as you're saying, how how most people are thinking about this. And unfortunately, you know, you hit the nail on the head. There's a lot of people that don't have the time or the ability to to think about that, the the luxury of having the ability to think about that or, you know, have discussions like this. Well, in the past, we had a fourth estate that did that job for us. You know, there was a time where you had relatively objective uh, commentators and more importantly, very aggressive, intellectually curious and somewhat cynical journalists at their old typewriters with the cigarette trying to really understand Mm -hmm. what's going on at Watergate, what's going on in Vietnam, what's going on. You know, and those those type of journalists don't exist. There's a great line by Upton Sinclair. It's amazing what a man is willing to forget or not understand if he's paid to not understand. And mm-hmm. if you look at some of the kind of Ken and Barbie disasters that pass for journalists today in the mainstream media, and I'm saying left or right, mm-hmm. there are some great exceptions. And I won't name them because then I'll be politically castigated for it. There are some great exceptions, but I think we all can agree um, that what passes for journalism at some of the bigger magazines and the bigger uh, once trusted sources, which are now corporate owned, you're not getting brave journalists. They have to go onto other platforms. They have to sneak off onto uh, you know, Substack. YouTube or elsewhere, Substack mm-hmm. or someplace else, because they, they couldn't be hired at Forbes or the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times anymore. There was no discussion about so many things. I think what's most important, what's most interesting about these so-called fourth estate platforms is what they're not writing about, what they're not talking about. And an example of that, and again, I am not pro-Putin, pro-war. You know, Clausewitz said that war is just an extension of politics by another means. I think war is insane. And I have many relatives and friends who are in a military background. I've certainly been through things myself. I have tremendous respect for soldiers, men and women. I don't like war, but that doesn't mean I can't be critical of Zelensky. Because let me say, and I'm not in favor of Putin crossing borders and killing civilians either. I think Putin is a machine. He's much smarter than Kamala Harris and Biden. He's much smarter than Zelensky. It doesn't mean he's my hero, but we have to understand the position we put him in. And one of the examples is Zelensky, who's being touted by the Western media as this this kind of George Washington of the Ukraine. A few things I'd like to say about that, because Zelensky, aside from my opinion, being a puppet, a former thespian who is now a leader of the Ukraine, which everyone in Europe knows is the Las Vegas of Europe, but has the reputation of being the most corrupt state in Europe. This is something we all know in Europe. But notwithstanding that, looking just at Zelensky, what was his first act after being propped into the Ukraine, a pro-Western leader in the Ukraine? Well, it was to jail his opponents. It was to 
take the kneecaps out of the media, anything that was counter to his messaging, also attacked the Christian church. Meanwhile, as he's being hailed, this new George Washington, as we're saving the Ukraine and what is really a proxy war between the West and the U.S. against Putin. Mm-hmm. For a lot of reasons, I don't have to get into the weeds on, which can be debated. Again, I'm happy to debate. I could be wrong. But the truth is Zelensky is not a democratic uh, symbol by any means. And while his wife is on $40,000 shopping sprees in Paris, he's asking for more money from, from the West. And to go in front of Congress and push for nuclear brinksmanship in front of our Congress and get a standing ovation is unheard of. Some at the New York Times should have written about that, at least had a counter argument. But in our media, that's not happening. The media industrial complex that's not happening. And to send Kamala Harris, who's never even been to Europe, I think my two horses in the front yard have more <laughs> European history skill than Kamala Harris, um, to send her there and then have her push a message of pro-NATO. When we promised in the 90s that we would never expand NATO, every administration since has done that. We've been pushing guys like Putin to the brinksman, to the brink. And if you look at smart statesmen, including Henry Kissinger, I'm not a big fan of, but even Henry Kissinger and Gosh, I'm trying to think you got Herman Kahn and, and Robert uh, Wolfstetter, you know, whatever you think of these guys, they are statesmen. And they have all said, don't go there. Don't push a war in Ukraine. Don't push NATO. What was Kamala Harris's first act at a podium in Poland, which again, she probably doesn't know where it is on the map as she pointed toward the Ukraine. Let's expand NATO. It's almost inviting war. And what we're not seeing is anyone like we did in the Cuban Missile Crisis. When I was in college, we took a whole year on the Cuban Missile Crisis to study it. No one is thinking about an outlet for peace here. We're just pushing, we're doubling down on a bad bet. I hope and pray it doesn't lead to nuclear brinksmanship. Nuclear war is not extinct. We did have one in 1945. We did use it. Tactical use of nuclear weapons is, to me, an oxymoron. It's insane. But the fact that we're even in this point, and that, that our leadership is so poorly prepared for it, and whatever you think of Biden, it's pretty clear that he's being dollied in in front of a podium. He can barely make a full sentence. I don't think he's making the decisions. That's an opinion. That should be discussed. That should be a concern, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, left, right, or middle. Who is making the decisions? Who are, you know, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, you had guys like Adlai Stevenson and Bobby Kennedy and even John Kennedy can think for themselves. So the Curtis LeMay and the military industrial complex didn't have all to say. It seems like today the neocons in the cabinet, in the Pentagon, have more say over foreign policy than our elected officials, who are also bought and paid for by other organizations. So again, what does this have to do with markets? It's all related because it's all financial. It's all political. It's all psychological. You can talk about yields. You can talk about credit markets. You can look at the graphs, where the Fed goes, the market goes, that kills price discovery. Debt markets influence political markets, influence political decisions, influence centralized control. Centralized banks are just another symbol of centralized control. Central bank digital currency is another symbol of that type of control. That type of drift towards more extreme control is probably the most dangerous and unspoken theme right now in markets. And I'm supposed to just be a guy talking about gold, a hedge fund guy who knows about bond spreads, but I'm mm-hmm. actually seeing a much bigger problem. And again, I have the luxury to do that, and my colleagues have the luxury to do that because we're not constrained by a board at Goldman Sachs or a media group that owns our, our message. Uh, we could be wrong, we could be right, but at least we're being blunt. And it'd be wonderful to have an open discussion with counter views, but I think more and more of the evidence is being more and more clear to more people, Tom, you know. Absolutely. And, you know, exactly in that vein, Matt, do you think that gold is the answer to, you know, the woes that we're now facing? You know, gold is not going to cure everything, for God's sakes. There is no simple answer to any of these problems. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it, it, you're getting into esoteric kind of, you know, uh, human questions, human, all too human questions, as Nietzsche would say. But I think certainly for currencies, it's one answer. 
you know, I'm a big proponent of uh, not just as an inflation hedge. That's too. It's it's more complex than that. I also like agricultural land, and I like I like the narrative of Bitcoin, for example. But in in terms of what I think historically is the safest thing about currencies that are dying, gold is an obvious choice, and gold is I think going to have a fantastic next couple of years. All throughout last year, and a lot of currencies had a great year, relatively flat because the U.S. dollar was so strong. That dollar policy, for a number of reasons, is not sustainable. I simply look at gold as a very unsexy narrative compared to, say, Bitcoin with a standard deviation of 170. I think Bitcoin has a wonderful narrative. I think central bank digital currencies, one of its first uh, missions is to kill you know, things like Bitcoin. They're a massive threat to the industrial complex that is the financial new world order. A central bank digital currency uh, has a direct, is, is directly threatened by Bitcoin. And I think the narrative for Bitcoin for freedom to have an un, you know to have a fixed asset and to not be controlled is 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 very noble. I think politically it's naive, but I could be wrong, and I hope I'm wrong. I hope Bitcoin gets the chance it has to give people the independent choice on their currencies. But when I look at gold, I look at the purchasing power of the major currencies since Nixon went up the gold standard. It's empirical. It's not a theoretical debate. It's empirical that the inherent purchasing power of all major currencies eventually goes to zero. And it's lost 98% of its value. The US dollar has the Canadian dollar, the Australian dollar. They've lost well over 95% of their inherent purchasing power when measured against a real asset like gold. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what you could buy with a dollar when I was born compared to what you can buy with a dollar today is a joke. And so to me, gold isn't about return 20% this year, 15% last year, flat last year. And why is it better than this? It's simple. Whatever currency I hold, whether it be a Canadian, Australian, or US dollar, or Euro, or a Swiss franc, I know that eventually my ounce, gram, or kilo of gold is going to be worth more than the dollar, or the Euro, or the yen, or the yuan, or the peso. That's not arrogant gold blood talk. It's actually kind of boring. It's just mathematically true. And by the way, gold can't be mouse clicked, hacked, or recreated. It also can't be hopefully controlled in the same way a central bank digital currency can. No, it's not the answer to every problem in the world. No, gold won't save you from every problem in the world. It can certainly be subject to all kinds of other risks that we can't even foresee now. But based on what I have in front of me, as insurance against dying currencies and more control, it's the best option I have for that role. If I want to take risks, you know, shorting with options, the FANG stocks or going long a certain sector, that's up to me. That's gambling. But if I want to have certainty and security, it's not gold bug talk. It's common sense. And, you know, unfortunately, everyone can afford large amounts of gold, but everyone can afford some gold. And I think it's something that should be discussed more. I know conservative families throughout Europe, Switzerland, Austria, it's, it, whether you're a farmer or a brain surgeon, everyone knows about gold. Everyone has gold. And that's not because they're gold bugs. It's because they've lived through cycles. They've seen pain that maybe certain other countries like the US haven't. They've gone through those type of centralized controls. They've gone through that type of distrust. And they've always trusted gold. I'm not saying that gold is the only solution. I certainly hope that Bitcoin doesn't get kneecapped just because of what happened by FTX. It's not the same thing. And that's another longer discussion. But uh, and I'm not here to make fun of Bitcoin. I simply am p- a proponent of gold. And I think um, uh, in this great reset to come in this central bank digital currency, even the IMF, the BIS knows that there's going to need some gold backing to have some partial coverage, to have some credibility. Otherwise, it's just another fiat, electronic fiat replacing a paper fiat. We'll see. We're speculating there. But I do believe uh, that gold loves chaos. And whether we print more money or whether we tighten more money and we create, by tightening, we create a massive recession globally, or by printing, we create more inflation, 
in either scenario, gold is going to creep up slowly at once, slowly at first, and then all at once. Because just like poverty is slowly at first, then all at once, gold will move slowly and then all at once. And again, I don't buy gold so I can say, hey, I bought it at 1400 and now it's at 2600 I just buy gold because I don't measure it in dollars or euros or francs. I measure it in grams and ounces or kilos. Um, and again, that's my opinion. Uh, it doesn't mean I have to make fun of uh, risk assets. You can still make money in the markets if you don't trade them. It's very dangerous. Uh, you can make money in, in digital in digital cryptos too. Uh, there's a lot of risk there too. I just have chosen gold as my choice. I don't make fun of those who have faith in cryptos. I do mm-hmm. think central bank digital currency is a threat to that to that asset class, though. I do think it is, and, and people should be aware of that. Um, uh, it's just an opinion, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like you're not necessarily a fan of gold, but more so a fan of of sound money. Yeah, you know, regardless of what form that takes, it's the constraint and the honesty that that makes governments act with that I think is the important part. And again, the 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 rise of some of these companies, like you know, we talked about FTX, for example, the liquidity that has been pumped into the system, these are all symptoms of this idea that we can print our way out of whatever problem we see and the issues that that comes with seem to to need some type of constraint that unfortunately, I think sound money is the solution to, right? Well, look, I joke about this. It's like my kids when they were teenagers and they're now older and wiser. And I was a teenager too. What did we do when our parents left the house and we had it for the weekend? Call our girlfriends, call our friends, get a keg, get some people over. There's no chaperone. So let's go crazy. Let's have some fun. It's maybe the fault of our parents for leaving us alone or the fault of human nature. And when you think about it, when Nixon took away the gold standard, there was no chaperone to how many dollars we could produce. They'd have to be tied to a golden ratio. So what happened since 1971? The world has printed trillions in fake money, and it's been a hell of a party. That weekend without the parents, it's the weekend without the chaperone. Mm -hmm. That is fun until it's no longer fun, until something breaks. And um, that lack of chaperone, that lack of accountability is certainly the fault of the policymakers like Nixon, who, by the way, promised in 1971 this was going to be temporary. That was over 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Another another false promise from a, from a so-called expert. We can blame the central bankers or the politicians for taking away the chaperone and destroying money, destroying paper money and taking away the chaperone. But let's let's not kid ourselves. That was a, a hell of a cake party for many decades. And certainly since we started printing, not only did we take away the chaperone, we brought more beer to the party when we started QE one, two, and three. We can blame Greenspan, Bernanke, Yellen, and Powell, and they deserve every ounce of that blame. But Wall Street and the investors themselves didn't mind when those printed dollars came into the markets and flayed those asset classes, certainly the top 10%, but anyone trading looks like a genius since nine, since 2009. Mm-hmm. So you can blame the policymakers. We have to blame ourselves for drinking that Kool-Aid and then being shocked when we run out of Kool-Aid. That's the fault of all of us. It's the responsibility of those of us with sound money principles and an understanding of history and informed knowledge of what monetary policy has done to say, all right, We've had the keg party. We're going to have the hangover. And that's what Ryan, you know, you know, Reinhardt and Rogoff said. If you're going to be honest when you're in a debt scenario like this, you have to be accountable and be admit. You have to A, admit that austerity is inevitable. The hangover is coming. You earned it. You bought it. You got it. You have to have a recession. And you have to be honest about inflation, none of which we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, our Congress is spending more money it doesn't have. 
And our Fed's probably going to pivot towards more QE or blame this on Putin or COVID or, or have a reset. So there's absolutely this immature unaccountability. Even when my parents went away and I had a keg party, I had the honesty to admit, yeah, I got that was my party. We had some problems. Some people got hurt. It was our fault. Politicians, central bankers, when was the last time you saw them honestly admit to a mistake unless they were caught with their hands in the cookie jar? It's pathological. They're like children. They're never wrong. And it's always somebody else's fault. And the journalists, they're like the, 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 the dumbest kids in class that are now making the messaging. It's really, it's, it's a dystopia right now. And I think, I think this, this teenage level intelligence, this teenage level information, this lack of expertise in our elected bodies, and that includes the, the leader of your country and the leader of mine, this, this lack of real expertise couldn't come at a worse time. And mm -hmm. it's, it's a global problem. Uh, and again, that's neither left or right. It's just universal right now. There's not a lot of great statesmen out there or, or brave thinkers in positions of power. The bravest mm -hmm. thinkers right now are debating on YouTube and on other platforms. They're not making decisions. Mm -hmm. Well, and unfortunately, you know, I don't think there is a need for any politician to take any sort of accountability because, you know, regardless of the decision they make, regardless of the consequence that ends up happening, nobody has held them to account. So why, yeah. why would they need to, you know, take responsibility right. for that? Right. Um, Matt, I hope, I hope that this, you know, reaches yeah. some, some more people and <laughs> at least makes, makes maybe people that are are watching this mainstream media think a little yeah. bit more and you know question maybe some of the things that we're always being yeah. told yeah and question us and question me i'm, I'm not Absolutely. here to give every answer i mean yeah. i i think that's really important to be humble but also be informed and and if you're going to debate someone you don't have to insult them you just have to disagree with them i would lean into a conversation where someone could change my opinion I'd love to change my opinion. My opinion is pretty dark right now. I don't like it. I don't want to be right. Egon and I talk about this all time. We don't want to be right. Absolutely. But we, we look at the data as we see it, um, unconstrained, and give our opinions. And, uh, and, and I encourage everyone to just think more about these, these, these interrelated themes. We got a little bit off on psychology and politics, which is very touchy. Mm -hmm. It's all based on markets and debt and rates, and money flows and liquidity and hangovers. And mm -hmm. so I think uh, the more you understand these grow these the bigger themes, the the better prepared you'll be to make your own decisions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and you know, I like the idea that, as you say, you're you're able to step back, take this thirty thousand foot view. You guys all come from very different backgrounds, and yet you've all kind of come to the same conclusion of being a fan of sound money and yeah. um, you know, rightly or wrongly, that has led you to gold as well. It has. For me, that's mm -hmm. been the all rivers kind of pointed towards that ocean for me. That, and mm -hmm. I come from a background of all risk assets and, you know, credit markets in particular, and they're very important. And I certainly don't poo-poo the experiences I've had on Wall Street or in hedge funds, but it's simple. I've come to the conclusion that I need to preserve wealth and preserve my sanity. And gold for me, for me, was an obvious choice. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's interesting. I yeah. remember having a discussion a, a while ago. And the the gentleman said that gold and silver are a gateway to understanding the world. And it's, you know, seemingly we've wrapped a lot of things into st starting from a discussion of gold and silver in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it is. They're all related. It's all, it's all connected. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent, Matt. Well, of course, your articles that I base some of our discussion on today 
are available at goldswitzerland.com. And of course, your books, the the titles of which Gold Matters and Rig to Fail are also available on Amazon. Anywhere else you'd like yep. to point anybody to? Uh, no, those are the that's the places you can find us. And um, you know, um, we get picked up a lot by other platforms, but you can go right to goldswitzerland.com to get it right there from Egon, myself, Ronnie Sturfula sometimes throws in some really interesting insights as well. He's brilliant. And we've mm -hmm. had some good discussions with Grant Williams. So we've got a really good team of advisors and principals there. And uh, again, uh, blunt opinions, uh, take, take them as you need them and debate them as you see fit, but they're there. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, welcome to take a look at it. Absolutely. Matt, thanks so much for your, your bluntness today. I really appreciate you going through this with us again. My pleasure, Tom. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.